Friends, take your Bibles, if you would, and open, please, to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. If you see someone around you without a Bible, and there's a few on your row, maybe you could share. If you're just coming in, there are Bibles, I think, at the front there, if you want to bring one. We're going to be in Luke chapter 18, which is in the New Testament. If you have a paper Bible, that's kind of toward the end. There'll be four Gospels. We're going to be in Luke chapter 18. I'm going to read beginning in verse 9. This is what Holy Scripture says. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great what Steve said earlier, that uh, the sun is on the move. So if you started in shade and find yourself in sun, please don't feel you'll be disturbing us if you need to move a little bit and uh, chase down some shade. A few weeks ago, I was visiting with a person who has only just arrived in Canada. And as we sat and we chatted together, I asked him, why did you choose to emigrate? It sounds like you've been doing very well where you were in the Middle East, you had a good job there, you had a good church, you had a good life. So what was it that compelled you to leave? And he explained that while that country had been very glad to allow him to work there, citizenship is only available to people who are fantastically wealthy, people who will be able to bring great riches to that nation. So he understood that that country would never truly fully receive him And therefore, that country would never truly be his home. And so he and his family, they moved to Canada where they knew they could become citizens and they could gain all the rights and all the privileges that come with citizenship. Now, isn't it interesting that the only path to citizenship in that nation, other than being born there, is one that's open exclusively to the rich? That's interesting, but it's not really surprising. In that way, and so many others, there are privileges that are available to the wealthy that are not available to the rest of us. 
Blessed are the rich, we might say, for theirs is the kingdom of this world. We've begun a little series on the portion of Scripture called the Beatitudes. You remember from last week that the eight Beatitudes describe the values of the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom that Jesus has established. And this is a kingdom that, like the the reflection of a beautiful vista in a mountain lake, is all upside down. It's upside down because what Jesus values is the mirror opposite of what we tend to value. Where we're drawn to the strong and the mighty, the wealthy and the powerful, Jesus means to build his kingdom around those who are merciful and meek, those who are mournful and, yes, even impoverished. This week, we come to the first of the Beatitudes, which says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If the blessings of, this king, of the kingdom of this world are upon those who are rich, the blessings of the kingdom of the upside-down upside kingdom of heaven, they're upon those who are poor, those who are poor in spirit. So today, as we consider that first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, I want to look together, you've got this in your song sheet, this outline, two prayers, two spirits, and one church. And to consider that, we're going to turn not to Matthew 5, where the beatitude is laid out, but to Matthew 18, which Paul just read for us. So you can turn, if you like, to, sorry, to Luke 18, to Luke 18, and we'll look there at two prayers. We all know what it is to be poor. To be financially poor is simply to lack the money we need to cover a basic standard of living. It's to have expenses that exceed our ability to pay them. That's what it means to be financially poor. But it's not as clear what it means to be spiritually poor. That's maybe a new category for us. Now, if I stood up here and I started a sermon by saying, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, your mind, your mind that's been well-trained in culture, in pop culture, it would immediately pick up on familiar words, familiar phrases, and you'd know. Oh, he's referencing Star Wars. I know that one. When Jesus spoke his Beatitudes, he was surrounded by well-trained Jews, and their culture was formed around the Old Testament scriptures. So their minds, as he spoke, their minds also would have picked up on familiar words, would have picked up on familiar phrases that were culturally known, culturally relevant. They would have known immediately that as Jesus began his Beatitudes, he was referencing Isaiah 61, an old prophecy that says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. So they would have known, they would have picked up on something we may not, that Jesus was saying now, he was claiming that he was going to further explain or that he was even going to fulfill that old prophecy. He was taking this old teaching and expanding on it. This old teaching that says, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Now, who are those poor people referenced in that prophecy? Isaiah continues, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. What Jesus began to teach here in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and what he taught all throughout his ministry is that the poor were the spiritually 
poor. People who are brokenhearted and soul sick over their sin. People who are captives being held by Satan to do his will. Those who had been bound to endless patterns of depravity. People who are as poor as poor could be. Then a little later on in his ministry, when Jesus wanted to to explain more what he meant by being poor in spirit, he told the parable that was read for us earlier. This parable about two men who went to the temple to pray. One of these men was a Pharisee. That's a, a religious authority. While the other was a tax collector. He was a greedy traitor, a traitor to his people. And if you'd ask the people around Jesus on that day as he began that parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector, they all would have agreed that the first of these characters was among the very best of men, and the second of these characters was among the very worst of men. Now, in Jesus' parable, a day came when both of these men, the Pharisee and the tax collector, they went to the temple to fulfill their religious obligations before God. So both of them went. But when they got there, there was this marked contrast between the two of them. This contrast in the way they behaved. So here's what Jesus said. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed in this way. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So that's the first man. The man everyone would have considered very holy and very upright. And now the second. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So that's the second man. The man everyone around there would have considered very evil, very unjust. But of course, we learn that only one of these men received God's blessing. Which one? Was it the very good man or the very bad man? The people listening would have been absolutely convinced of the answer. It's the Pharisee, of course. It would be like pointing to me and to Andre de Grasse and asking, which of these two men do you think won an Olympic gold medal in track and field? You look at us, the answer should be pretty obvious. But you remember, Jesus' kingdom is all upside down. So here's what Jesus said. I tell you, This man, the tax collector, he went down to his house justified rather than the other. In other words, this guy outran that guy, to everyone's big surprise. One of these men in his prayer exemplifies what it means to be poor in spirit, while the other exemplifies the very opposite. So let's consider then two spirits. We've looked at two prayers. Let's look at two spirits. Now, what's the opposite of poor in spirit? What's the opposite of poor in spirit? You might want to say it's rich in spirit, but it would be better to say proud in spirit. What was it in the Pharisee that Jesus found so very offensive? Actually, the preamble to this little parable gives us the key. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So Jesus spoke this parable as a means of confronting and correcting people who were ultimately trusting that they could earn their own righteousness. 
both the Pharisee and the tax collector knew that in some way they had each failed God. Both of them knew they had accumulated some kind of a spiritual debt before God. Both of them were well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures. They knew all about human sin and divine grace. Both admitted, I'm a sinner. But they would have responded to admitting that very, very differently. And it's in that different response that we get for us highlighted the distinction between being poor in spirit and being proud in spirit. So the Pharisee might have said something like this. I have done some bad things. I've sinned. But that's really been a matter of priority rather than of ability. See, it's not that I can't be very good. It's just that I haven't tried hard enough. So as of today, I am starting over. I'll try harder. This time, I'll get it right. Then I'm going to bring all those good things to God and I'll present them to him as, as proof of my sincerity, proof of my righteousness. So the opposite of being poor in spirit is self-reliance or self-sufficiency. is to make yourself the solution to your problem. You still admit need. You still admit sin. But then you attempt to meet that need all by yourself by just trying harder. I have long observed, you probably have too, that Every other faith in the world, and, and way too many faiths that masquerade as a, as a form of Christianity, they're essentially all about self-reliance. They're essentially at their root about human effort, about trying harder. So they admit some kind of spiritual debt or some kind of spiritual need, some kind of failure, but they insist that the solution lies within, with labor, with effort, with self. The ultimate call to action in Islam is try harder. You've sinned, you'll face divine judgment, so try harder to be good and hope that in the end all your good deeds will outweigh all your bad deeds. Think about New Age spirituality in its modern forms. The ultimate call to action is try harder. You're not all that you could be. You've not seeded enough positive energy into the universe. So what should you do? You should be better. You should do better. You should try harder. Honestly, the ultimate call to action, even in Roman Catholicism, even in the prosperity gospel, even in a Joel Osteen sermon, it's all the same. It's try harder. This is the natural instinct. This is the human instinct. This is the Pharisee instinct even our instinct if we're not continually preaching the gospel to ourselves, even as believers. Now, to a person who believes that the solution lies within, that the solution is to try harder and accumulate enough good to balance out the bad, Jesus might say, woe to the proud in spirit, for they shall only ever see the kingdom of this world. They might rise to the very heights of of the kingdom of this world, but they shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Why shall they not enter the kingdom of heaven? Because they have fatally misunderstood the nature of their sin and of their sinfulness. They fatally misunderstood the seriousness of their sin. They haven't understood the vast gap, the infinitely vast gap between created beings and the one who created them. 
They haven't admitted that the treasonous nature of the rebellion against God, that they turned their backs on God, that they betrayed God by declaring him an enemy, that they tried to take God's throne, his, his right to rule for themselves. They haven't owned the sheer ugliness of their sin, the sheer wretchedness of their souls, the sheer helplessness of their condition. See, try harder is the instinct of the person who believes he is not really all that sinful and God is not really all that holy. It's the instinct of the person who rates his best attempts as extremely meaningful and his worst failures as merely trivial. Try harder is the instinct of the person who can march up to God, look him in the eye, and just read off a list of accomplishments just like that Pharisee did. The Pharisee was proud in spirit. He came to God with a list of credentials, a list of accomplishments, a list of what he was sure made him acceptable, even desirable to God. And that Pharisee who was proud in spirit is contrasted by the tax collector who was poor in spirit. And that tax collector is a perfect illustration of our beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, if the Pharisee would have admitted his badness, but then excused it as a matter of priority, I just haven't made a priority out of being good, the tax collector would have said something like this, I have not done anything good because I can't do anything good. This is not about priority. This is about sheer ability. I just can't do it. Even when I feel the desire to do something that's purely good, I find I lack the ability to carry out. Even when I set out to try to do what's right, even when I set my mind to it, even when I bend my will toward it, my actions and my motives are still all mixed up with evil. Oh, wretched man that I am. Have you ever been caught in a riptide? You know, most currents flow from the ocean to the shore, but a riptide is a current that flows from the shore out into the ocean. And if you, get, if you get caught in a strong riptide, you can, you can try all you want to swim against the current, but no matter how much effort you expend, you'll still just be pulled farther and farther back from the shore, farther out into the ocean until you tire yourself out and drown. What should you do if you're caught in a riptide? Stop thrashing about, just wave your arms so the lifeguards will come out there and rescue you and bring you back to shore. And in much the same way, when we realize our spiritual debt, the best thing we can do is simply admit it. Just admit our poverty and cry out for help. Just say, I've accumulated a debt of sin that I can never repay. It's beyond my ability. It's beyond my means. I'm poor. I need to be rescued. So do you, do you see the contrast then between proud in spirit and poor in spirit? That Pharisee came to God with hands that were full of credentials. Look at all that I've done. The tax collector came to God with hands that were empty and simply pleaded, God, be merciful. The Pharisee was absolutely certain that he deserved God's richest blessings. The tax collector was absolutely certain that he deserved God's just condemnation. The Pharisee went before God to brag of his spiritual wealth. The tax collector went before God to declare his spiritual bankruptcy. The Pharisee came with a resume. The tax collector came with repentance. 
So to be poor in spirit is most ultimately to have an accurate self-assessment, just like that tax collector did. It's to know yourself, to not only be poor, but to be full-out bankrupt. It's to know that if your debt will ever be settled, if it's ever to be settled, it'll need to be canceled. It'll need to be forgiven. It will need to be paid by someone else, not by yourself. My friend, do you have an accurate self-assessment? I expect you to admit that you've done some bad things. We've all done bad things. None of us can deny that, not rationally. The Bible calls these bad things sins. And it tells you that just one of these sins is enough to put you infinitely in debt before God. Just one. And I think you've probably committed more than one, as have all of us. The natural temptation is still to try to do enough good things to try and balance out the bad. That's always the temptation. But my friend, that is like trying to fill the Grand Canyon with a teaspoon. It's, it's futile. It's like trying to air condition the Sahara Desert. It's impossible. It's only going to lead to failure. No matter how much water you spoon into the Grand Canyon, no matter how much cold air you blow into the Sahara Desert, the canyon will still be empty, the desert will still be hot, and no matter how many good things you attempt to do, you will still be sinful. You'll still be in debt to God. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that we talk about here week after week after week, the gospel rescues you from impossible effort. It calls you out of the riptide and it compels you to just wave your hand and be rescued. It calls you away from trying harder and calls you towards simply receiving. Your debt must be paid. Your debt can be paid, but not by yourself. Only by Jesus Christ. If you put your faith in him, if you repent and believe the good news of what Christ has done for you, your spiritual debt will be canceled. He will pay it for you. God will receive Christ's goodness in place of your badness, and he will give you Christ's holiness in place of your sinfulness. And in that way, your account will be settled forever. You will be poor in spirit but you will be rich in blessing. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. To be blessed is to have God's favor, is to have God's approval, is to have God's smile. To be blessed is to live from the favor of God rather than for the favor of God. You won't live to earn God's approval. You'll just live out the joy of having already received it. If you want to become a citizen of many nations, you need to be rich, rich in money. If you want to become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you need to be poor, poor in spirit. Citizenship in, in that kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, it cannot be purchased, it cannot be willed, it cannot be earned, it can only be given by mercy. Citizenship comes not to the ones who think themselves wealthy, but to the ones who know themselves poor. Why? Because it's an upside-down kingdom. So if you haven't already, why wouldn't you come into that kingdom? Be poor in spirit. Plead mercy rather than merit. If you come to God with empty hands, he will meet you with open arms.
now I'd like to talk to the, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven that are right here, the, the members of Grace Fellowship Church. We've talked about two prayers. We've talked about two spirits. I want to talk about being one church. As we've seen, when Jesus began his parable, he explained why he was telling this particular parable at this particular time. Again, Luke 18, verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. People who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and therefore treated others with contempt. There is a connection between the way we relate to God and the way we relate to one another. People who are proud in spirit will treat other people with contempt. People who are poor in spirit will treat others with respect. So being poor in spirit then is not just about entering the kingdom of heaven. It's about living as a faithful citizen. And those who live as faithful citizens must live in harmony with one another. There must be peace in this kingdom. In churches, local churches like this one, we bring the values of the kingdom of heaven to these, these little outposts among the people of the kingdom of this world. If you drive around this city, you'll see all kinds of cultural centers for different ethnicities, places where people who have come to Canada gather to celebrate the values and culture of their nations of origin. Just a few minutes from my home, we've got a Polish cultural center. We've got a Ukrainian cultural center. We've got a Portuguese cultural center. The local church is a heaven cultural center. It's a heaven cultural center where we join together to celebrate the values and the culture of God's kingdom of heaven. So right here, day by day, week by week, we're called to exemplify the values of that kingdom beginning right here with being poor in spirit. So how can we be poor in spirit in our relationship with one another? Let's draw four lessons from our Pharisee, from his self-righteousness before God and his contempt for other people. Four lessons. Remember, compare, rejoice, and forget. First, remember. We need to remember our bankruptcy. I once heard of a man who had risen from poverty to riches. And to make sure that he would never forget his roots, he would make this annual pilgrimage to, to the little house in the village he grew up in. He would live there and remember what it was like to fetch water from a well, to have no servants to do his bidding, to, to shiver through cold winter nights. And having done that, he would return home to his big house in the city, thankful, not taking, not taking for granted the privileges he had. Our Pharisee was so convinced of his riches that he forgot his poverty. He was so full of his accomplishments that he no longer remembered his failures. It is good for us. It is good for us, my friends, to remember our spiritual poverty to remember that we came to God with bankrupt souls and empty hands. Let's always remember where we came from. Let's never neglect to remember what God lifted us out of. Think even of the songs we sing. We sing, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. We're remembering our bankruptcy. Or the song we just sang, Nothing in My Hands I Bring, Simply to thy cross I cling. We're remembering our poverty. 
So let's continue. Let's continue to take seriously those corporate confessions of sin. Let's listen attentively every time the pastor preaches the gospel because we need to be reminded of it too. Even if we've heard it a million times, the million and first might just be the sweetest hearing of the gospel of all. Always remember what God drew us out of. So remember, also compare. Compare ourselves properly, that is. The only way to know if we're growing in holiness is to to make a comparison. But we have to make sure that we're making the right comparison. If you go to Canada's Wonderland and you want to ride on the roller coasters, you need to be a a certain height. You know what doesn't matter? It doesn't matter how you compare to anybody else. It doesn't matter if you're taller than the other person. All that matters is if you reach up to the top of their measuring tape. Did you notice how the Pharisee came to conclude that he was such a good man? He compared himself to people he believed were worse. He compared himself to other people. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, especially that tax collector. But see, that's like trying to ride the roller coasters by saying, but I'm taller than he is. doesn't matter. That's not the right measure. What matters is if your head comes up to the top of the mark. We, we love to compare ourselves to other people Because it's a comparison, we can always force ourselves to win. We can always win that comparison if we want. But it doesn't matter if you're holier than me or you're holier than the other guy. All that matters is if you're as holy as Jesus Christ. Because he's the one who perfectly showed us how to live an unblemished life before God and before man. And when we compare ourselves to Jesus Christ, we'll always be confronted. We'll always be challenged. We'll see our shortcomings and we'll repent of our shortcomings and we'll take up the challenge to be more and more conformed to his image, to be like the king of this kingdom. Third, rejoice. Rejoice in the spiritual accomplishments of other people. And to do that, if you're going to rejoice in the spiritual accomplishments of other people, you need to learn to look upon them with eyes of mercy rather than eyes of merit. See, that Pharisee looked at others and he defined them by their flaws. He defined them by their sins. Who were they to him? They were unjust. They were extortioners. They were adulterers, cheats. And he treated them accordingly. Of course, if that's all they are, he would treat them badly. But surely there was more to these people than their pasts. Surely there was more to them than their struggles, more to them than their flaws. But that same temptation is ours, to define other people by their worst characteristics rather than their best. To define people by who they were rather than by who they are. To define people by their past depravity more than their current trajectory. It is far, far better to look upon one another with eyes of mercy. Then we can just rejoice in all these evidences of fresh grace we see instead of being dismayed by remembrances of old sin, of old depravity. And finally, forget. Forget, forget the good things you've done. Too much of a focus on your own spiritual accomplishments will eventually end up harming you. You know, Paul tells us to keep no record of other people's failings. I think there's just about as much value in keeping no record of your own successes. Otherwise, you'll just be tempted to keep a tally of all your righteous deeds. And then what will you do with that? You'll use that to convince yourself that you're better than other people, just like 
the Pharisee did. What's a better approach? When you do something that honors God and serves another person, just thank God for the opportunity, thank God for the grace, then just leave it in his hands and move on. If someone thanks you or someone commends the grace they've seen in you, you can just make the words of Luke 17 your own. You can say simply, praise God. I am an unworthy servant. I have only done what is my duty. Just as God forgets each sin, you can be sure that he remembers each act of love, that he treasures each deed of faith. You can just keep entrusting all of them to his care. What God asks of us in this first beatitude is hard. It's to be poor. We don't want to be poor, but God asks us to be poor, poor in spirit. And those who are poor in spirit are those who are really at, at spiritual rest. They've admitted their bankruptcy, and they're now just confidently resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. There are seven other Beatitudes that we'll explore in the, the weeks to come. But Jesus gave us this one first because it's really the gateway to all the others. Church, if we're not poor in spirit, well, we won't mourn over all the things that break the heart of God. If we don't come with empty hands, we won't be meek before God and before our fellow man. If we haven't admitted our own spiritual bankruptcy, we won't hunger and thirst for the free gift of righteousness. If we're going to live out the values of our new citizenship in this kingdom, we must begin with the first of them. We can't explore the kingdom until we've entered in through the gate. And poverty of spirit is the gateway to the kingdom. Poverty of spirit is the doorway to all of God's richest blessings. So let's be poor together, shall we? Let's be poor together. Let's be okay. Let's rejoice to be poor together. And let's pray right now that God would give us that kind of poverty. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to admit our bankruptcy, each one of us, and to remember that we came to you with empty hands and were received by your open arms. Father, we pray that we would compare ourselves with Christ rather than with one another. We pray that we would rejoice in your grace as we see it evident in other people. We pray that we would each do our duty before God and keep no close tally, no strict accounting of our good deeds. We pray that through your word and through your spirit, you would help us identify all those ways that we continue to live as citizens of the kingdom of this world instead of living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And Father, as you help us identify those ways, please enable us to repent of them, to replace those earthly values with heavenly values. We pray that that this place, Grace Fellowship Church, would be a true cultural center of the kingdom of heaven. Let it be a place where heaven meets earth, where the values of your kingdom come down and are lived out and are on full display. Pray that you would do this, Lord, by your grace and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.